So Ephesians chapter 1. So I've titled this sermon, The Riches of God's Grace, Part 1. So, so just a word to you. When I first broke this down, so, so when, I, when I decide to go through a book, I, I'll generally take a few hours and I'll, just, I'll, I'll go through the book and break it down in preachable passages. And so when I initially broke down Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 3 through 14, it was one passage. I thought, that'll be one sermon. Well, a couple weeks ago when I started looking in, in specifically at the, the, the verses, I thought, that's too much, so we're going to make it two parts. So verses 3 through 10 became the, the subject of the first sermon. Well, then this week, on Monday morning, as I'm, I'm looking over, I'm thinking, 3 through 10 is too much for one part, so we're going to do... Verse, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Well, then on Thursday, I'm thinking it's got to be 3, 4, and 5. I, I can't do even to verse 7. Uh, but I, I've done my best, and, and we are going to get through verse 6 this morning. So it's part 1 right now. Uh, part 2 will be next week, uh, but it's yet to be determined if part 2 will get us through this passage. I think it will. Um, but, but so we're, we're going to look at this whole passage is, as, as I mentioned last week, it's one Greek sentence in 200 words, all packed into this one passage. And so the outline of this passage, as we'll see this morning, verse 3 is the summary sentence or, or the thesis of all that follows. So verse 3 is, is the, 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 the summary sentence. And then the following verses, verses 4 all the way through 14, are filling out... The, the subject of verse 3. And so verse 3, as we'll see, it says, Bless God, praise God for all the heavenly blessings that are ours. And then verses 4 through 14, work out what those heavenly blessings are. And so this week, our goal is to look at the first two of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Then next week, Lord willing, we'll get through the last three. Um, so, so let me read this passage. Let's read it. Uh, and then we will pray and begin. So, so Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 14. Uh, and then, then we'll, we'll look at the verses 3 through 6. So Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in, all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, 
to the praise of his glory. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, I I ask that your word would be clear to us this morning. Lord, as, as Paul joins in praising and blessing you, I pray that we as your people would join with him in glorifying you, in worshiping you to the praise of your glory. So give us help by your spirit. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So hopefully you can see why this isn't all going to fit in one sermon, right? Verses 3 through 14, that, that would be a long sermon. So, so we're going to look at, at, at verses 3 through 6, and here's the, the outline is going to be first, point one, blessing the God who blesses, right? So that's, that's verse 3, that's the summary sentence, and, and Paul is saying we ought to bless the God who has blessed us. That, that's the whole logic here of this passage. Then blessing 2, or, or section 2, blessing 1 is chosen. So Paul says, bless God, the Father, that he chose you. So we're going to look at chosen. What, is that? what does Paul mean there? What, what's, what's his thinking there? And then, then point three, we're going to look at the second blessing, which is predestined. So, so Paul says, bless God that he chose you. Bless God that, that you're predestined. And that's in verses five and six. And so, so, so work through those as, as we go. So beginning first with verse three, blessing the God who blesses. And so as I mentioned, these verses, they mark not only the introduction, so this is the introduction to Paul's letter, but it's also the main sentence of this eulogy, this blessing. It's, in essence, a summary of the entire eulogy. So verse 3 is important. And so Paul begins with these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a declaration. It's as if Paul begins saying, Blessed be God, and then it's just this this fire hydrant of, of blessings that come out, in the following, but, but the, whole, the whole foundation of it is bless God or praise God. And th- this background, as Paul begins this way, this language is all over the Old Testament. If you think about the Psalms, how many times, blessed be God or blessed be the name of the Lord or blessed be God. And so this language that Paul starts his letter with is grounded in the Old Testament. And so all over the Psalms, God is often, the Lord is often blessed for his benefits, his provision, his his answer to prayer, his deliverance from evil. All of these things are, are things that, that God's people bless him for or praise him for. And often, almost all of sometimes he's blessed just for being him, bless the Lord for, for being the Lord. So sometimes that's the case, but, but nine times out of ten, the blessing of God is tied with something that he has done, with action that he has taken. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's blessing God for all that God has done for his people. That's why if you have the NIV, the beginning of verse 3 says, praise be to God. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, praise God for all of these things that he's done. So Paul is calling his readers and calling us to rejoice and bless God with him. Notice Paul writes as one who has himself received the blessing. Though an apostle, though sent by God, he is still a recipient. So he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Paul is one of those who has received these blessings. And so as we come to to these these verses, as a believer in Jesus, if you're hearing you're a believer in Christ, what is true of Paul, what is true of the saints in Ephesus, is what is true of you and I. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, Paul says the reason that God the Father is to be blessed is because, what, uh, because of what God has done for you and me, for his people in Jesus. 
So, so, so I want us to praise, I want us to rejoice and bless God for what Paul writes here, because that's why Paul writes it. And so he says he's blessed us with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so the first question we ask is, well, what, what does he mean? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, what, what's he talking about? And right off the bat, we, we, we ought to recognize the context here establishes that the nature of these blessings that he's talking about, are, are, they're, not, they're not to be in doubt. Instead, they're detailed in the following words. So he says, bless God for every spiritual blessing that's ours. Oh, by the way, here's what they are. Here's five of them right off the top. So, so it's not as though he leaves us undefined spiritual blessings left for us to discern. He says, praise God for the spiritual blessings, heavenly places, and here's what they are. And so the things that follow in verses 4 through 14, as Paul lists them one by one, are the things, the spiritual blessings that have been bestowed on us in Jesus. Now the last thing I'll say here before we move on is noting, noting here at the outset, and this is why I read the whole thing, but this section, many people say, oh, it's impossible to, to categorize it. It's not ordered because Paul is just off the top of his brain, just, just blessings are flowing out. But it does seem to be intentionally grouped. And so, so notice there in verse 6, the beginning of verse 6, do you see how that begins? This translation, to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, so that's verse 6. Now, now notice verse 12 and how verse 12 ends. To the praise of his glory. Do you see that in verse 12? Now notice, hopefully you're sensing a, a theme here. Notice verse 14. Do you see the end of verse 14, the last verse we read? The Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So do, do you see the theme and how, how that refrain is, is very specifically three times in this passage? And so each section then seems to focus on one particular member of the Trinity. So, so he's recounting what God the Father has done to the praise of God. Then he's recounting what Jesus has done to the praise of God. Then he's recounting what the Spirit does to the praise of God. Of God, so that verses four through six, we'll look at today. Focus on the electing work of the Father. That, that's what he's going to say. The Father does, and to the praise of His glory, we'll see in verse six. Then verses seven, eleven, seven through eleven, he focuses on the redeeming work of Jesus the Son, to the praise of His glory. Then verses twelve through fourteen focus on the sealing work, the gift of the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. And so the effect of this opening is that every member of the Trinity plays an essential and active role in your, in my salvation. I mean, you should, you should recognize that, right? It's easy for us to say, yes, Jesus died for our sins, and yes, Jesus played a part, but, but there were other members at work in your, in my salvation. In other words, if you're here and you're a Christian, your salvation is dependent upon the work of every member of the Trinity, all three members equally active in the one plan of salvation. And so, so it's amazing the unity in the Godhead from start to finish. This is one act of salvation that all three members play an intricate part in. The Father elects, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals. There's unity there. And so what Paul is doing here is he's tracing the plan of salvation and what he's doing is, is describing the salvation of every individual Christian as extending from eternity past, that's where he's going to locate it, to eternity future, to, to being with the Lord forever. And by doing so, Paul's aiming to give the believer numerous reasons to praise God for every spiritual blessing. And so this morning we're going to look at the first two. 
namely that we're chosen and predestined. And both of these blessings, as we'll see that they're grouped together, they both focus on the beginning, the, the starting point of salvation. And both, both blessings make the same point, namely that it was God's plan from the beginning to save individual Christians. I think that's the point Paul is saying. God's plan from the beginning was to save you. And so my, my hope, right, the language we're going to see in 4 through 6 is, is language of intention and initiative. And my hope is that as we're going to see this morning, when your individual salvation finds its starting point in the plan of God the Father with His intention, with His taking the initiative before the foundation of the world, when you, when you recognize that, I believe you'll recognize the same thing that Jonah recognized as he was saved from a certain death in Jonah 2.9, when Jonah proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? When you recognize that it's the Father's plan from the beginning to save you, and not your plan, and not your initiative, but His and His alone, the response is, salvation belongs to the Lord. And we join Paul with blessing Him. So let's look there at verse 4, the first blessing, chosen. So verse 4 reads, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So here Paul states in no unclear terms that the first reason for the believer to bless the Lord is because God chose them. He, that is God, chose us, that is Christians, in Christ. That's what he says. He chose us in Him. Now when Paul here refers to us, I think he's simply referring to himself and the saints there in Ephesus. In other words, the us here doesn't function as a corporate marker saying, oh, it's just this, this general broad us. No, Paul is saying God chose us individuals who make up a corporate identity, yes, but it's individuals that were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what he says. And again, it means if you're here and you're a Christian, what Paul says to you is that you ought to rejoice and praise God because God chose you. God elected you. Now, he did so for a purpose, which we'll see in a moment, but, but stop and think about what Paul's saying. God chose you. You, warts and all. You. This is a personal, intimate thing. I mean, I, I don't have any experience to relate this to, but, but the closest I could get is the playground scene. Right in third grade, at, your, at Mount Vernon Elementary School, we used to go outside for recess. And we play kickball every day. Right now, now it was different because everyone had to be picked. Right? No one was left out. But there's still something. If, if you're near the front, right, you, you want me to be on your team? Oh, Wow, well, okay, I'm, I'm not the last one picked, right? There's something about when someone says, I want you, Nathan, to be on my team. There, there's something about that. There's wonder and amazement at being chosen. But most of the time, like was the case with, with one of my classmates named Billy Wheeler, Billy was the first person picked every single time, right? Billy Wheeler could kick the ball farther and higher than anyone in third grade. Right? All classes considered, Billy Wheeler was the best kicker. And so without fail, every time we chose teams, Billy was first. And in Billy's case, right, he was chosen. Why? Because he could kick the ball farther than anybody else. Billy was chosen because of what he brought to the team. Right? He, he was gifted above everyone else. But here... What makes God's election even more astounding is to look at when, when Paul says that God chose you. It was before the foundation of the world, meaning it was before you had anything to offer. 
It was before he had any potential. It was before he had done anything good or bad. As one commentator writes, to say that election took place before creation indicates that God's choice was due to his own free decision and love, which were not dependent on temporal circumstances or human merit. And so if we think of God choosing us based on what we had to offer, we miss the point. Paul's point is God chose you because of what you couldn't offer. You had nothing to offer, and he still chose you. That's his point. Paul says God chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, now it isn't uncommon for people to look at this choice, this election, this choosing of God, and to explain that it's based on a decision that would be made temporally. In other words, many will say, okay, yeah, God chose those whom he knew would in time choose him in the outworking of their lives. In other words, they would say, I'm a Christian, which means that God chose me, which means that God knew that I would choose him and therefore chose me in accordance with my foreseen choice. Do you see that? Do you see how that that understanding of choosing, that God sees who's going to choose him, and he says, okay, Nathan's going to choose me when he's eight years old at Emmanuel Baptist Church, so I'm going to choose him before the foundation of the world. That's how it's explained. And when I hear that, I just want to say, read the verse. This verse, in fact, this entire section goes out of its way to remove me, to remove you completely from this process. The verse does not say anything about my part or my role, nothing about my foreseen decision. It's just not there. And so to base God's election on a foreseen decision or on his omniscience suggests more than this passage claims. The verse says God chose us. And what's more, though, though verse, th- verse 4 doesn't specify, down in verse 5, and then later in verse 15, the motivation or the basis of God's action is not found in any foreseen human action or decision, but instead is based solely upon his good pleasure. That's what it says in verse 6. He chose you according to the praise of his glory, according to his own will. And so to make the individual who's the recipient of salvation the primary starting point of that salvation goes contrary to Paul's teaching and misses it completely. To make the individual who's the recipient of this great salvation, the primary starting point of that salvation goes contrary to Paul's teaching. What makes this teaching such good news is not that my election is ultimately based on what God knew that I would do, but instead the good news is that I never would have chosen him if he had not first chosen me. One great... England preacher is quoted as saying, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me after I was born. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special Love. So I am forced, he says, to accept that great biblical doctrine. I mean, brother, sister, it's in light of the reality of sin and the fall, in light of the reality of human rebellion, that the doctrine of election shines its brightest. In fact, it's clear in Scripture that human beings fall short of God's glory. Right? Not one seeks him, Paul writes. I would never choose God left to myself. God didn't choose anyone because he knew they would choose him or because they were holy or had something to offer. 
He did not choose anyone because they were deserving. On the contrary, all people, me included, you included, are sinners and deserve rejection, punishment, condemnation. There is no obligation on God's part to choose anyone. And the fact that he would choose anyone is evidence of his great grace. The point, one author says, is that if God had not taken the initiative, no one would have eternal life. The real problem, listen to this, the real problem is not why he had not chosen some, but why he chose any at all. Do you see how that changes the perspective? Why should he choose any? Christian, before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Now, I know there are questions, right? I realize that the meaning of this verse is often discussed and debated, but, but what I want to simply recognize is that this verse in context Paul does not here address those not chosen. That's not his purpose in writing. And so I'm happy to talk about that and and answer questions, have dialogue about that, but this is not the point of this verse. Paul does not address those who are not chosen. Paul's aim is not to say anything about who isn't chosen. Paul's point is simply to say to the saints in Ephesus, to those believers in Jesus Christ, We ought to bless God because he chose us. Paul's purpose in listing these blessings, as I hope I've made clear, is to elicit praise from God's people, which means, most basically, God's election of an individual Christian is cause for praise. You may have questions. You may lack clarity. You may not be totally crystal clear. You may wrestle with some implications of this. But at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, it's... Because God chose you before the foundation of the world. And for that, Paul says, blessed be God. It's like the, an example of the publisher's clearinghouse check. Right? They don't do that anymore. But, but during Super Bowls, I think, is when they would be very popular. The, the, the people with that huge check. I always wonder, how do you cash that? But they'd show up with this big check. They knock on the unassuming door and say, congratulations, you just won a million dollars. Their response is, is tears. Oh my God, can't believe it. Uh, unbelief. But I, I never saw someone say, well, wait a minute, what about my neighbors? Are, are they winners too? Now, now maybe eventually they might get to that question, but, but when it is first presented, it's, oh, I can't believe it. I don't deserve to win this, why me? And so Paul is saying, praise God that he chose you. He's writing to the Christians. And so before moving on, let me me just make a case that God's election or God's choice is not something that's new here in Ephesians. In fact, the entire Bible is full of examples of God's election of individuals. So let me just run through, through a few. Think about Abram in Genesis 12. It's rather clear, isn't it, that God chose Abram. Right? He said, Abram, go, leave your father's house to a land. I'm going to show you. Well, why Abram? Why Abram? I mean, how many other men were there in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans that God could have chosen instead? Surely he had neighbors. But God says, Abram, I'm choosing you. Now go. Or think about Moses and Aaron to be the deliverers of Israel. I mean, why Moses? Why is he going to be the one that's going to be the the means by which God delivers Israel from slavery under Pharaoh? Sure, there are others that could speak better than Moses. And why Aaron, his brother, to be the priest to perform these these sacrifices? Why Aaron? 
Or think about David. We're not too far removed from our study in 1 and 2 Samuel. Why did God send Samuel to appoint David? This man is the one, him and him alone, not any of his brothers. But this man is going to be, he is my chosen one. Or Paul picks up the example in Romans chapter 9, the, the, the choosing of Jacob. Why did God choose to bless Jacob right? and not Esau? These are two brothers who are twins. And God says the blessing from Abraham is going through Jacob and not Esau. He's the one. They were twins. You can't get more similar. Yet God tells Rebekah, before they're born, the younger is going to serve, or the, the older is going to serve the younger. The younger is going to be stronger. He's the one that's going to be the, the blessed one, not his twin brother. And it's before they were born, before God could say, oh, okay, he's going to be stronger, so, so I think it's going to be better for my plan if I choose him. No, he says, I'm going to choose him because I want to choose him and not his brother. And so in all these cases, God chose individuals for his own purposes. And we don't know why. We don't know why Abram over another. It's God's prerogative. And in all these cases, we see these stories play out. We, we see that these individuals were not worthy. Sure, they all had some mountaintop experiences, didn't they? They did great things, all these individuals. But their lives were littered with less than great moments, weren't they? I mean, think about Abram on his way to the land. Uh, I, I don't want you to die, wife, so just pretend like you're my sister. I know God told us to go, but, but just pretend you're my sister. Not long after, same thing. Yeah, yeah, just be my sister so they don't kill, kill me for you. And, and others. And so as these lives play out, we recognize that if God had chosen them based on their own merit, on their own potential, he certainly would have scrapped the whole thing and started over. But it's not based, his, his choice is not based on what they could offer. And then the final example, and I would say most similar to Paul's use here, is, is the nation of Israel. So it's a, a corporate election here. And so think about Israel. God chose that nation. No other nation. Were, were there other nations in the world when Israel was there? Of course there were. But the Lord in Deuteronomy 7, listen to what he says in verses 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. He says, For you, talking to Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, which mean, means he chose you and not any of the other peoples. In verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. That's not why, Israel. For you were the fewest of all peoples. If this is what you had to offer the Lord, he would not have chosen you. He'd have chosen the Assyrians or the Egyptians. But that's not why God shows you. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers, that he chose you. So ultimately, it's God's love that led to his choice of Israel. Again, God's election is not based on merit or worthiness of the individual, as it's clear here with Israel. Pride, pride contradicts God's purposes in election. There's absolutely no reason for the Israelites to boast in their standing before the Lord, for them to be proud regarding their relationship with the Lord, as if, uh -huh, we're the best, that's why God chose us. No, it's the opposite. You know, the Old Testament is filled with examples of God choosing individuals for his specific purposes. And it continues here, it carries over. There's a shift 
after the coming of Christ, but it's seen here in the Ephesians. I mean, I thought about what does Jesus tell his disciples in John 15? He said, you didn't choose me. Why are they disciples? You didn't choose me, but I chose you, he writes. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Well, before we go into verse 5, we have to deal with the second part of this verse. Not only did God choose you before the foundation of the world, but Paul continues, God chose you to be holy and blameless before him. So here Paul gives the goal for which he chose people. Okay, chosen, got it. Well, why? What's the purpose? So as not to let his audience get carried away in the privilege that divine election brings, which, which it does bring great privilege, but here Paul reminds his hearers that being one of God's people, that being chosen by God also carries with it great responsibility. You're chosen for a purpose. God chose us to be holy and blameless, pure, which tells us what? We were not that way. We're chosen to be that way, which means we're becoming that way. We are not holy and blameless. We're saved that we might become holy and blameless. And so if you're a Christian, not only ought you to be encouraged by the fact that God chose you, you also ought to feel the weight of God's purposes in your life. The reason he chose you. This verse teaches that a main, if not the main purpose for your Christian life is that you might be holy. That you might bear the image of your Savior. That you might reflect the character of this God who has chosen you. I mean, if we just step back and think about God's eternal, time-sweeping plan. Think about it in the beginning. There's God and man in the garden, fellowshipping together. There, there's unity. There's oneness. And quickly followed by rebellion. So man, Adam and Eve, the first man, the first couple, rejects God's rule. And with it, the relationship that comes with him. And so there's separation. And there's punishment. You're, you can't be in this garden anymore. But God's purpose from that point forward is redeeming a people for himself to be with him again just like it was in the beginning. And in order to do this, he doesn't only have to deal with the sin that's been committed. It has to be payment for sin. Sin has to be paid for. But he also has to positively make them pure and spotless and holy, better than Adam and Eve were. We have to be holy and blameless because if, if on that day we hope to stand before him, we must be holy. Which is why God's plan of salvation, which begins before the foundation of the world with election, would, in that election, include holiness. If you're chosen to be with him, you, you must also be chosen to be holy. Because you're not with him if you're not holy. There's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so I wonder, Christian, if you feel the weight of that this morning. You're called to be holy. To live a holy life, which goes much deeper than what's on the exterior. You're called to be holy, Christian. Just as a nation that's holy is to be different from other nations, just as a place that's holy, such as the tabernacle or the temple, is, is different from other places, just like God who is holy is different from other gods. And so people who are holy are to be different from other people. I mean, since God has chosen the believer to be his possession, the believer should reflect God's character. Or as one commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, put it, 
There is a dominant ethical quality about divine election. There's a dominant ethical quality about divine election, as is inevitable in view of the character of the God who elects. And so, Christian, our life we aim at, we strive, strive for, we labor towards holiness. And so if you want to read ahead, if you want to read on ahead and get some ideas of what Paul's talking about, some really practical ideas regarding what holiness looks like in the Christian life, read Ephesians this week. Read ahead because Paul's going to work out very specifically what this holiness looks like practically. Paul's going to fill in the details. He doesn't leave holiness as a vague or abstract idea. I mean, it's chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. He's filling out details, focusing on the specifics of living the life of a saint. Remember how he greeted to all the saints in Ephesus, the, the holy ones, the, call, the ones called to be holy. That's, that's, that's a primary impulse of his letters. He wants Christians to live holy lives. And so the logic here, the order that Paul lays out is that election precedes holiness. Or to put it another way, holiness is the result of election, of being chosen. It's not the other way around. The aim of the Christian is to be holy. The aim of the Christian to be holy is motivated by the fact that he or she is God's possession. It is chosen by God. And so because we are God's, then we desire to be holy. I mean, do you see how that comes before that? It's not the other way around, which would be, if I want to be one of God's family, I better be holy. That, that's not how it works. For, Christian, for the Christian... You fight for holiness. So is there sin in your life that you're refusing to hold on to, that you're refusing to, to face? Right? God's people face sin and fight it. They don't ignore it. They don't pretend it's not there. And so do you fight for your holiness? The question of whether or not you really belong to the Lord is not in the balance. And if you are the Lord's, you're going to fight for holiness. And so you better fight So we'll move on. Blessing number two, our last point. Verse five. So, so moving on, verse five and six. Paul continues. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So there, we won't say anything about it now, but there that last phrase, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, Right? That's the transition to the second person of the Trinity. The beloved there is Jesus, which next week he's going to talk about what, what do we have in Jesus. Right? So, so that's going to be next week. That's the transition. But here, verses 5 and 6, Paul, with this clause, expands on the idea of, that he's just made, the concept he's just introduced of God's choosing us. And so he continues that idea. Not only did God choose us to be in Christ, but at the same time he decided to bring us into a relationship with himself that could best be described through the metaphor of adoption. And notice the connection between these first two. If God has chosen his people in Christ from the foundation of the world, then he's predestined them to be adopted into his family as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. The idea of being chosen, of being God's own possession, is further illustrated or affirmed by the idea of adoption, the idea of belonging, of possession. And so God predestined us to be adopted as sons, to be part of his family. Again, it goes back to God in the beginning. 
And this verb, this verb that's used here to predestine, every single time that it's used in the New Testament, it's, ex- it's used exclusively of God. So it's God that does this verb, predestining. God is the one who does it. And it means literally God determined or marked out before time. So something that God does before time, he, he determines or marks out that you will be a son adopted into his family. It's before, before the foundation of the world. That, that's the implication there. And what God predestined again was that individuals would be adopted, which means that privileges would be given that were not naturally deserved. God predestined that men and women would be adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. And as those who have been adopted, every Christian has entered a privileged position that was not ours. In fact, Paul's whole point is that it would never be ours if God had not predestined that we would be adopted. And it's here, this idea that adoption... This context that I can't understand how these verses relate merely to corporate realities. The whole idea, illustration, metaphor of adoption is only personal. You're adopted as as a person into a family. Adoption is personal. Especially in the Greco-Roman context that Paul's writing into. Adoption was a common thing when you had this this wealthy Roman who didn't have an heir to to carry on his his legacy. He would adopt someone, and they would get the legal privilege so that when he died, it was his, as if he was his own son. And so this this practice of adoption would have been well known by Paul's audience, and it was personal. Individuals were adopted. And so Paul's point is that individuals were predestined to become children of God, which means... Right, this idea of predestination, it's not cold or hard or unfeeling, but the final purpose is relational. God is bringing together a people for himself to be in relationship with. And he does so, notice the end of verse 5 and end of verse 6, God does this according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. God elects and predestines according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. Which means that God's will is the foundation of his activity. I mean, this is just something we have to recognize. Since God is God, his purpose and activity have no ultimate cause outside of his own being. That's what it means to be God. He can't be forced to do one thing or the other. The reason Paul is writing these things to the Ephesians, the reason that he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is because the entire purpose or reason behind God's actions is to the praise of his glorious grace. God has done all these things that he might be praised. The idea isn't that God wants to praise himself. Rather, the purpose of God's Activity here is to reveal his own character as a God who would save and adopt people to be part of his family. And when this aspect of God, when God is revealed in this way, praise is the inevitable result. Which means a right understanding of these things leads to the praise of God's glorious grace. And so for the Christian here, we ought to recognize all that God the Father has done for us in Christ. I mean, that, that's the application. 
God has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless in him. And in love, he predestined you for adoption as sons according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. God's done that for you, Christian. You didn't deserve it. And so meditate on the salvation that's yours. Rejoice in God's grace that has been given you. Grace that came unmerited. Grace that runs contrary to what you deserved. Grace that God determined to lavish upon you before the foundation of the world. Grace that you, that saw you and wanted you to be his child, to be part of his family. Grace that welcomes you and accepts you. This is grace. God chose you and predestined you to be adopted. Praise him. And as I close, I, I want to address one more group of people here. And that's if you're here and you're not a Christian. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you've been listening to a lot of in-house discussion. Right? This letter, Paul's text here, does not address you. So, so nothing that's said here is true of you if you're not a Christian. This addresses Christian, though, Christians, those who are in Christ. And this text unlocks the great blessings that come to undeserving sinners through Jesus Christ. That's what It unlocks the great blessings that belong to those who are united to Jesus Christ through faith. And so even though this text doesn't address you, it wouldn't be right for me to close this sermon without addressing you. And so if you're not a Christian, hear me when I say, in Christ are immeasurable riches found. And in Christ... Lavish grace is poured out. And so the entry point for you into this world of every spiritual blessing is Jesus Christ alone. The entry point for you into this world of unmerited favor, of immense blessing, is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the worst thing that you could do today is to walk away asking yourself, I wonder if I'm chosen. I wonder if I'm predestined. That's not the point. This is not for you to consider. The only thing, the only person for you to consider is Jesus Christ. Because it's in Him that all of these blessings come. You need not worry about election or predestination. You need to worry about Jesus. What are you going to do with Him? Because in Jesus, you have every spiritual blessing available to you, but it doesn't come apart from your faith and your repentance. And so with all that I'm able to, I urge you to turn from a life of sin, a life of living for yourself, a life of fighting for those who don't fit in your plan, of arguing about, about your will and your way, of being constantly frustrated when, when things aren't the way you want them. You're the problem. Get off of the throne of your life and put Jesus in charge. Put your faith in him. He, he is Lord of all, and he longs to be Lord of your life, directing every step of your way. And so I would ask you, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because there's a day coming when you won't be able to make that choice. There's a day coming when you won't be able to decide either for or against him. Because here in your hearing of this, in this call to make a decision, you've made your decision. And so if you refuse Jesus, you have no hope to be blessed by God at any point in the future. 
especially on that final day when you stand before him. But, but, there's hope for you today in Jesus. He came while you were yet a sinner. Christ died for you. And so my hope, my prayer, every Christian in this room, our prayer is or ought to be that you would put your faith in Jesus. Your life won't magically become different, but your backpack of blessings will become immeasurably heavier. And you'll carry those into eternity future. And so if you want to talk about this, I'll be standing down here. You can come while we're singing. Afterwards, find me anytime this week. Talk to me. I'd love to share with you. If you have someone here who's a family member or a friend who could tell you about that, talk to them. We want you to trust Jesus because he's worth it. Let's pray as we close.